Bienvenidos. Willkommen. Hosh Gazanese. Welcome to the Drawing Core podcast. This is Drawing Core 24, which means it's our official six-month anniversary of the weekly Drawing Core podcast. Now, it hasn't actually been weekly. That part has not been a success, but were it to, it's actually been longer than six months, but were it to have been weekly as intended and as still intended, like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that maybe we can just measure our weeks by how many Join Core podcasts there are. So, again, this, this last week has been an extra long week, like 10 days or so, because it took 10 days for this podcast to be made. So, I like to think that I'm actually giving, not me. But the podcast is actually giving an extra few days every week for everybody. So I hope that you've, I hope that you're, hope that you're good. First of all, how how are you? Are you are you well? Um, and I hope that uh, whatever's going on for you right now, you've enjoyed those extra days in the last week. You've been able to put your feet up, do a bit of nothing, just be relaxed. This podcast is brought to you by your left little finger and I'd just like to thank your left little finger for everything it's done for you over the years and everything that it's helped you to achieve and if you don't have a left little finger then this podcast is dedicated to the memory or to the aspiration of you having a left little finger so thank you to your left little finger for making this podcast possible despite everything so we're going to talk about satirical comedy today and it's something that I'm very interested in for a long time. I've been interested in stand-up comedy for a long time and I've done bits of stand-up comedy for many years, not infrequently but for a long time and uh, there are certain comedians that I kind of grew up watching that I still love and others that I grew up watching that I really have moved away from and I think at the moment we see quite a lot of satirical comedy and what I mean by satirical comedy is just basically comedy with a target so we our broad Wikipedia definition is is that satire is humor irony exaggeration or ridicule used to expose or criticize we might think of satirical comedy more specifically as like uh, comedy that deals directly with politics for example but I want to I want to stretch that definition to out a bit for for this conversation today, because I think it also applies to the sort of meanness that we might find in more surreal comedies like uh, Rick and Morty um, or whatever. I'm, um, or and it also applies to just like jokes we might make with our friends, like in our uh, in our everyday lives and how we take responsibility to use satire to make fun of things in a responsible way Yanni um, we talked about cynicism last week and this kind of follows on from that but you don't need to listen to the cynicism podcast to enjoy this one but last week um, we talked about cynicism how it's grown in prominence I think due to uh, neoliberalism and also due to the changing way we consume culture so in particular how media channels are wired for like maximum consumption hyper consumption 
um, that's that's my hyper consumption is my kind of phrase that I can that's the way I can express it which is going gives us lots of content very fast very easily and we'll, we'll come back specifically to that hyper consumption later in this episode but we're going to follow on from how how we talked about kind of good cynicism which might be constructive we talked about watchmen and, and how watchmen kind of exposes and criticizes and explores the way that cynicism feeds and the way that it leads to a kind of maybe fascistic worldview where you kind of the characters the superhero characters in the comic see the world as this gutter as this horrible place and all the people in it as horrible people and they are the kind of arbiters of justice and morality um, and so the comic explores where that comes from and how that feeds and what it kind of leads to um, so it's a bit of a cautionary tale cautioning um, the other kind of bad or dangerous cynicism that is you know in fact embodied by those superheroes fascism and we're going to talk we're going to kind of we're going to kind of try and reach out to that to understand what dangerous cynicism can be like when when satire and cynicism becomes a bit too much and it seems to only lead us into a worse situation so I'm going to, I'm going to, like I mentioned Rick and Morty, I'm going to use a fair amount of, I'm going to call upon a fair amount of comedians to reference during this. But what I've done, which is very exciting, very exciting, I've prepared lots of snippets of these comedians to play to you, which are going to give Yanni some idea of the points that I'm making in regards to each of them. It's partly to explain a point it's partly to give you a reference that you might not already have because it's you know my privilege to have enjoyed watching all of these comedians and it can be that you have different tastes or different ex different access or different knowledge or whatever but it like i said this is this is this is i want this to be very broadly applicable so we we're going to talk a lot about stand-up comedy, but I hope that we talk about it in such a way that has a bearing on how we conduct ourselves in, in kind of any form of mockery, whether it be just with our mates, taking, taking the piss out of each other, or mocking ourselves, or you know, in, other, in other pieces of art. So the clips that I've got are just kind of filling in, they're just kind of colouring this thesis, discussion, whatever. They don't always, I couldn't always find exactly the, the thing I was looking for, but um, I just think with a bit more colour we get closer to a easily shared fucking understanding. Right, so that's Let's let's get on with this, and we're gonna we're gonna start by talking about offensive comedy because this is kind of maybe what you're already thinking of, if you are familiar with, especially stand-up comedy, comedians who toe this line, being controversial, being offensive, and pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable to say. Stand-up comedy has in fact been a bit of a vanguard for pushing the freedom of speech. A very famous 
court cases against Lenny Bruce, comedian in the US in I think the 50s, um, about his profanity on stage. Um, and now, all this time later, we let comedians get away with quite a lot on stage. And I'm not just talking about when you go to live comedy. Um, I'm also talking about the comedy we see on television, comedy we see on Netflix, yani big arena shows which then have DVDs and then a, a broadcast and everything. But that's 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 been hard won by lots of comedians, yani. But when we talk about offensive comedy, people are often saying like, is offensive comedy or is this offensive comedy acceptable or not? Rather than talking about who is this actually making fun of? Who are we laughing at? And kind of more than that, what is it saying? Like what discourse does it present? So I'm gonna play you a little bit to kind of get us in get us in the mood. This is Bill Hicks, very one of my favourite comedians, um, for his own for his own specific reasons, for my own specific reasons regarding him. But he's in He's in US, he's in the 80s, 90s, he died quite young, he had he has very, very prominent, notable figure. Lots of people uh, respect and you know, idolise him even, um, or even uh, refer to him as a kind of prophet. But he did a kind of very specific kind of angry, authoritative, calling out kind of comedy and he generally punches up so he generally makes fun of people or institutions in power so this is him making fun of the arms industry you know he armed Iraq I, I wondered about that too you know during the Persian Gulf War those intelligence reports would come out Iraq incredible weapons incredible weapons how do you know that well We looked at the receipt. <laughs> but as soon as that check clears, we're going in. So that's when we if we ask what what's that saying? What it's saying is like that the US government is deeply embedded in the arms industry and uh, profits from the wars that it creates and then fights and so on. I'm not really going to talk about those kind of jokes because that's not that controversial in my mind. We have moved on a little bit from some of the controversial topics that were before. So I am going to focus a little bit more on slightly more contemporary offensiveness. But more, more than that, I'm going to talk about stuff that really is on the line that I'm not in fact sure if it's okay to say or not. So I'm going to play you another clip now, which is um, probably 10 years after that, another American comedian who very much follows in that tradition of authoritative calling out, mainly punching up, but a lot more difficult, I think, to swallow. So this is Doug Stanhope talking about migration in the US. I can go out any day and watch Border Patrol arresting these guys by the dozen, 11 at a time, out of a Dodge Omni, like a clown car with plastic cuffs. And you're right, they don't speak the language, and they probably have 
no education. They don't have fucking shoes half the time. They're like barefoot and tattered castaway, like Gilligan's Island shorts. And, hey, the fucking dirty T-shirt and dehydrated, wandering the desert for four days. And if that guy is as qualified for your job as you are, you're a fucking loser of such epic, humiliating proportions. So, essentially, the target of that routine is the people who are complaining about migrants coming and stealing their jobs. But he does it by way of also making fun of migrants and presenting them in this comically grotesque way. So I think this gets a bit more complicated. Doug Stanhope is for me a very complicated comedian to critic because his way of telling jokes, even though they might be sentiments that I agree with or radical sentiments that I think are important to provoke people. He does it in a very, yani, offensive way. And I do want to bring up someone else here who I will come back to several times in this episode because I think that in regards to what we're talking about, she is a very interesting comedian to watch and I, I would very much encourage anybody to, to watch her. Hannah Gadsby did a very a very popular Netflix special called Nanette. The, the samples that I have from her in this podcast are all from the show and I highly recommend if you have access to Netflix or any other way of watching it to, to watch it. It does something, I think, very different with comedy. But she's talking here in this clip about self-deprecating comedy. So I want to just say here, even when we don't have a target like Bill Hicks and Doug Stanhope did in those clips, even when we're just making fun of ourselves. So this this is maybe not, you wouldn't think this is satire, but this is what I want to also include in this discussion. She talks here about the problems with that. And I, I've built a career out of self-deprecating humour. That's what I've built my career on. And I don't want to do that anymore. Because do you understand? <laughs> do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from somebody who already exists in the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak. And I simply will not do that anymore, not to myself or anybody who identifies with me. So what she's sort of explaining there, I think is really interesting because there are so many comedians who are who identify themselves with marginal groups. So she is a lesbian. She identifies as being a lesbian. She talks about how she did sort of lesbian comedy before and how this was often self-deprecating and I remember watching a lot of comedians who were uh, not white who were different who came from different um, parts of the world different cultural backgrounds making fun of their own cultural backgrounds and I think this still happens and I think this is problematic in the way that Hannah Gadsby points out because 
it puts you, you're putting yourself down to say this and I think when we ask what is this comedy saying if we include in our comedy these oppressive statements about how we as lesbians are this or that then we only serve to reinforce those things and we are humiliating ourselves we're not actually fighting with them obviously there's an irony in it which we're going to come back to irony in a minute but it's a it's a, always an excuse to make fun of someone to say well I am that person so I'm allowed to make fun of that but I would like to bring into question like are you like should it matter who you identify with if you're still gonna make fun of a group of people unfairly so in I found there's a really nice article a really interesting article I should say in the Guardian in 2009 by someone called Brian Logan who writes a lot about stand-up comedy and a lot of the what a lot of what I'm talking about is gonna is sort of UK based because that's my that's where my knowledge is but back in 2009 he Brian Logan was talking about the new offenders and he traces the history of comedy in the UK very very broadly so he talks about how in the 80s there was this rise in alternative comedy and alternative comedy kind of pushed off TV some of these older comedians who were like old men's club comedians who would make pretty sexist racist jokes so in the 80s we fat we saw this kind of fuck off to the establishment politics and I want to play a bit of Jerry Sadowitz who uh, is from Scotland and the best clip I could find is from a show that he did in actually in America and so what I want to what I want to kind of show with this clip is the kind of the roots at least in this tradition of UK comedy of angry satire so Jerry Sadowitz here is um, this is a TV show he did and um, there's a character of George Bush who is um, competing with Jerry Sadowitz for who's going to present the show my fellow Americans the battle for the presentation of this show has been long fought and the votes have been counted and at last we have a new presenter I will talk to each and every one of y'all and give you all a fair hearing unless you're poor <laughs> the contest to present the show is far from over if you vote for me I promise to tell you all to fuck off disregarding your race your color or your creed so that's that's the fuck offness that came in the 80s and I think there's a radical streak in there which is still living on today but also in that time was the rise of political correctness so this is now Alexi Sale um, who's a very left-wing comedian Jerry Sadowitz is more yani, angry there is this explicit politics especially in dealing with George Bush that you heard there but Alexi Sale is a little bit more direct in his attack of the political system in the UK one of the weird things about the left is their obsession with slogans, writing slogans on walls, you know, slogans like jobs, not bombs, as if Mrs. Thatcher's going to be walking up Wigan High Street. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
not bombs. Oh, okay. <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher would have a clue where Wigan was. Mrs. Thatcher has special compasses made with the north taken off. <laughs> so that's that's a, a routine there about how Margaret Thatcher, who was at the time the um, in power in the UK, was her policies were incredibly detrimental to the north of the country. To, that's your that's your basic context there, but the point is is that in the eighties they saw a rise of politically correct comedy and comedy that was directly engaging with the establishment as target of satire. And I want to quickly step over to US to say that this is this these kind of this kind of satirical comedy anti-establishment comedy is really the I don't know how you say like the bread and butter of what we think of as the major figures in US comedy so uh, we're talking about Lenny Bruce talking about Bill Hicks talking also about Richard Pryor Richard Pryor was a black comedian who I think was 60s or 70s came to prominence and it was very very popular and here is a little clip of him making fun of racial divides in US Different lifestyles. See, white folks don't play enough. They don't relax. They don't know how to play the dozens, nothing. Right? They get uptight. You tell a white dude, go fuck yourself. I'll fuck you, motherfucker. He get very offended. I beg your pardon. I mean, as supervisor here, I don't believe that kind of language is necessary. We certainly can communicate on a higher plane than that. So I think this kind of comedy is very exciting. This kind of satire is very exciting like Bill Hicks's satire that we started with and in this article in the Guardian about the new offenders Brian Logan is talking about how comedians now admittedly this article is more than 10 years old now but I think it still holds holds true talking about how contemporary comedians are sort of reacting against that right on anti-establishment politically correct comedy and the question is is why like why why react against that and a and a a very popular opinion maybe at that time especially was that political correctness has gone mad so political correctness is too restrictive on our freedom of speech and i'm going to play now a comedian called Stuart Lee who we also hear quite a bit of quite a few bits of his comedy in this episode um, talking about political correctness and explaining why political correctness has it is so important now I don't think political correctness has gone mad people still get killed don't they at random for their for their race or their sexuality and what is you know political correctness it's it's a, an often clumsy admittedly negotiation towards a kind of formal linguistic politeness and there's all sorts of, of problems with it but it's better than what we had before I'm 40 years old I can remember before political correctness when I was at school 1981 there was one Asian kid in our class and every day when the teacher read out the register instead of using his name every day for a year he called him the black spot it wouldn't happen now right and in, in the mid 60s the Conservative Party won a by-election in Birmingham when they sent out little kids with leaflets that said if you want a nigger for a neighbor vote Liberal or Labour. And if political correctness has achieved one thing, 
It's to make racists in the Conservative Party cloak their beliefs behind more creative language. So the point of view that political correctness has gone mad, I don't really want to give much space to in this podcast. So I think it's a little bit of a tired perspective. As Stuart Lee says, there might be problems with political correctness. We can for sure improve or critique it, but political correctness is is a, is a significant uh, factor in our fight against racism and sexism um, and other forms of oppression, in especially in the 80s and, and coming to now. And the other thing that people think about that process coming to now, which I think is dangerous, is that sexism and racism and homophobia are over. We've sorted that, everything is fine now. Which is simply not true. As Stuart Lee said there, people still get killed for their race or their creed or their sexuality or whatever. There's still a hell of a lot of oppression and you don't have to go very far into reading about it to understand how that happens or how that is, uh, how that is real. So to say that those things are over that is a privileged point of view. That is something said by someone who does not have to deal with that shit. So we're gonna we're gonna come back again. We're gonna come back also to the idea that there's a privileged point of view when it comes to offensive comedy. The third sort of maybe reason why people would react against that right on politically correct comedy of the eighties um, is to treat it ironically. So this is, this is kind of a big and slightly subtle or tricky topic, but um, basically I think that irony can be quite dangerous. So if we use irony to say something that we don't really mean in order to mock that point of view, again we run the risk of speaking from a very privileged perspective which disregards the the offence or the disrespect that that might cause to people who are actually living that shit still now because it, it does still continue that oppression and I want to so there's there's a nice video that I would recommend checking out um, by a YouTube channel called the Pop Culture Detective and if you're interested in the sort of stuff that we talk about here with critiquing, criticising, bringing critic to popular culture, for sure check out Pop Culture Detective. And he has a couple of videos called uh, Sexual Assault of Men Played for Laughs about how there are, there are these, there's a kind of rampant trend of jokes about men being sexually assaulted in mainstream comedy movies especially. So that's, I think that's something to bear in mind when it comes to irony, because I think the defense of those kind of jokes would be, well, it's ironic, we don't really think that's acceptable, but uh, the, those, those videos really go to show, go to like um, cast light on how crazy it is to make such jokes. But I wanna kind of shift to a, a different kind of irony, which is where, um, certain things and especially sexual violence or sexism are, are played in an ironic way with the expectation that we will laugh at how ridiculous that point of view is but I I think that as in those those videos if we cast a light on those characters who are uh, sexual predators and we really look at 
that presentation, I think it's very uncomfortable that those things even exist on our screen. So this this is going to play you a couple of clips now. These are actually from comedy dramas. First one is from Green Wing Hospital, um, comedy drama from I think the mid noughties or something. It makes things mid noughties. Um, and I remember this really enjoying this being very funny. I went back to it more recently, and I was very disturbed by some of the characters and some of their attitudes. And the intention is that we laugh at these characters because we ironically understand that it's not okay. But I would question why we would laugh at all at such horrible perspectives. So in Green Wing, there's a character called, uh, what the fuck is his name? Guy, I think he's called Guy, one of the main characters. And he is essentially, in the first few episodes especially, a sexual predator who is um, who is harassing the new doctor um, played by Tamsin Greg. Um, so this is a little clip and it was difficult to find a clip that really gave a sense of how awful he is behaving um, but uh, in this clip Tamsin Greg's character has stayed at his house the night before and he has started spreading the rumour that they had sex together when they didn't and she is obviously very upset by this. There you are. Oh yes, here I am, an anaesthetist in the anaesthetist's room. Ta-da! Have you been missing me? Everybody in this hospital knows where I was last night. Caroline, you weren't supposed to tell anybody! It wasn't me! Are you sure? You know how one little boast leads to another. You are very, very irritating. Yes, you are. And you know what you should do with an irritation? You should rub it with cream. Very manipulative, very inappropriate. There's not okay behaviour. And I don't really want to explain why that is. Um, I don't think that I need to. Uh, and I'm going to play now another clip from um, a slightly earlier comedy drama called The League of Gentlemen. There's a character in that called Pop who is um, a Greek landlord. And there's also very heavy racist connotations by the fact he's. Uh, a Greek character and the only Greek character but he is a very horrible landlord who rents out a horrible space for too much money and he is very lecherous in his attitude towards the young couple that um, rent his room but hey what am I thinking about this is your first week in your new home there is no place for pop here I go I come back for the money in the morning. Oh, don't worry. I have my own key. I hope that you get the sense of that unpleasantness of that character. And I think the two problems with this are, again, we are laughing from a position of privilege. It's just insensitive. If you were someone who had been harassed by someone at work or someone who'd been harassed by their landlord, there would be no way of finding that funny, I think. Or at least it would be a very difficult and sensitive discourse if, if you could understand that um, with any kind of sense of humour. So I think there's a, a, a lack of consideration. And the second problem, I think, is that, you know, we need, we need to see and we need to ourselves represent good you know ideals like things that we'd like to see i think we can't 
continually see presentations of horrible characters without any positive characters because there is there is very it's very rare that we will have a the the flip side to that in these dramas where we have someone who delivers justice as it were to that dynamic and is the is someone that we can look up to as a role model for how to behave as opposed to someone we're laughing at for being uh, horrible so like just as I want I wouldn't put a song in this podcast from an artist I didn't want to support um, I think we should always like more than we generally are be very diligent with what we're saying who we're laughing at da 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 like I would definitely strive to call out friends if they said something that I thought was inappropriate. I would also, more than that, strive not to let any disrespectful discourse in my life, no matter how safe we are in a kind of private space. So this is this is quite a radical point of view. I think a lot of people think that between friends they can make more inappropriate or insensitive or disrespectful jokes because there's a safety in the private. But again, we, I think we need to see and represent good things, things we can look up to. I think we talked in a very early podcast about uh, Jacques Rancière's Emancipated Spectator and how if you want to subvert something, you can do it two ways. You can go in with the accepted way of doing things and then you can show it to be rubbish or ridiculous. Or you can just go in with something new and the second option is perhaps more valuable because it doesn't give any value to that uh, the thing you want to subvert whereas if you come in with the normal state of affairs and then you then you take the piss out of it you kind of implicitly say that there's no way of mocking this or no way of creating an alternative without first accepting the dominance of the of the norm so it's kind of along those lines in that every time we uh, present something negative like a, a, a discourse or a persona that is we want to criticize we kind of implicitly strengthen it just by representing it even if we then take the piss out of it what's much more valuable is to be presenting something different something good but you know, realistically we play a bit loose with that because we do live in this world and we communicate with what tools we can and how we understand the world and what we are striving for is in fact just a world that tends towards better we can't be very we can't dictate what is good or acceptable all the time in all of our private spaces and we might have lots of nuances that um yani mean that we can't be perfect in this and i'm not calling for perfection i'm more calling for consideration in as many avenues as many forms of communication as as we have calling for consideration as much as we can um, and it, and i mean all of this discussion is about those slippery more subtle satirical um, communications where it is difficult to know exactly how to present or what is okay and what is 
um, inappropriate. So I'm, I, I respect that there's a kind of loose way of this, a, a loose reality to all of this. But what about when we're, what about desecration for its own sake? So when we're actually, the way we're using irony is actually to be, to kind of exaggerate a very nasty point of view in order to provoke or in order to, yeah, basically in order to provoke. So when, when I think that people would kind of defend that, people kind of defend offensive comedy for provoking us to consider what is acceptable and what is not. And I think this can be a very useful mechanism as part of a process. And so there's the uh, Valerie Solanus, Solaris, Solanus, um, Cutting Up Men Manifesto. This was published, I think, in the 70s, and I meant to uh, get it up to read a little bit of it now, but I haven't got it. But um, this is like a manifesto which is very misandrist, very man-hating, to a very like violent, uh, exaggerated extent. And I don't endorse that. I don't exhaust cu endorse cutting up men, but I do think that that's an important part of the process of challenging patriarchy. So it's a useful mechanism as part of a process. Um, so when there's a context around it, I think it's important. I think it's important so to provoke those in power to say to men, yeah, you do fuck this up and you need to accept that. We don't hate you, but like, please do confront with this so that we can then move forward together. Yani. But what if this desecration is just left to stand on its own? What if you just make that violent, offensive joke and you don't comment on it yourself? So you don't, pre you don't present a process, you just, um, you just tell an offensive joke. So my example of this kind of joke that's just left to stand, it should be taken ironically, but it is offensive, is uh, Jimmy Carr. Jimmy Carr's a UK comedian who's been working like mainly in the 2000s um, and this is from his most recent show that I could uh, check 2016 and very quick simple joke that is pretty offensive so like there maybe is a trigger warning for this um, but I hope that in the context of this discussion it's not going to trigger um, but uh, yeah he's talking about he's making fun of basically uh, sexual violence here. I find most young women make a lot of noise in the bedroom. I guess they're not expected to see anyone at their window. <laughs> so this is um, meant to be taken ironically. We're not meant to think this is a serious comment, but this is about yeah, someone, uh, yeah, uh, harassing uh, young women. Um, not very nice, like, topic of conversation, and um, there's no process there to sort of examine that he moves on to another joke straight away but um we talked about the scum manifesto yani like in the scum manifesto itself there isn't really a process um from which this from which this critic of men can um grow into something else so the question is kind of, is it the performer's responsibility to 
contextualize the irony and make it more constructive or is it a shared responsibility that we need to then take what is being said and implement it in a more constructive way now there's quite a difference between the scum manifesto and that joke by Jimmy Carr and I like thinking that it's a shared responsibility to contextualize satire basically it allows us to not reject out of hand um, pieces of art which are ostensibly just offensive but um, I think we should I, I mean I think we should strive to participate in culture so discuss it and this is kind of what we do in this podcast although this is different in uh, this hyper consumerism because it's very fast paced and we will again come back to more about hyper consumerism and how it makes this um, responsibilizing of desecration difficult but do you think we should kind of elevate people who take their responsi responsibility seriously and present it as part of their art because that sets a precedent in the like scum is kind of easily contextualized whereas Jimmy Carr makes his jokes very difficult to contextualize partly because he just moves on partly because he's he's more of a he's existing in a more contemporary culture where everything is very fast paced so you don't have much time to process um, a, a, a one of his comedy shows really um, and he doesn't he, he in fact um, I'm gonna play another clip he in fact undermines the idea that we should kind of take responsibility he should take responsibility of his jokes so I'm gonna play that bit that bit now and again it's pretty offensive directed towards women this time I try not to censor myself on stage I should say that early on I, you know if I think something's funny I think you might think it was funny as well and then we'd all have a laugh release some endorphins and the world would be a very slightly better place yeah and if anyone's offended yeah fuck them <laughs> But I wrote a joke recently that I worry about telling. I wrote a joke about the negative stereotypes that still prevail in our society concerning women. And I worry about telling that joke because I worry, well, if I were to tell that joke and it were to be misconstrued as genuine misogyny, it could really light the fuse on some bitch's tampon. <laughs> I would feel awful. I'm not sexist. I've got nothing but respect for every woman I've ever slung one up. I think that's a really crucial example of how this kind of attitude to offensive comedy undermines the idea that it should have some responsibility. And some of these comedians who are talked about in terms of these new offenders will defend their comedy as a matter of course, like, my intention is for the ironic offensiveness to be understood and to be contextualised and to be processed in such a way that we don't um, uh, uh, perpetuate misogyny or racism or whatever. But in, in, in this example of Jimmy Carr, I think um, we see how that is kind of not taken seriously and in fact laughed at. And I want to contrast this with Hannah Gadsby again. Hannah Gadsby talks, I, I couldn't find a bit in her show where she says, 
explicitly how she takes her freedom of speech very seriously um, and how that's a responsibility but this is a this is a maybe perhaps a better excerpt of her taking responsibility over her comedy reflecting on the comedy that she's done I think part of my problem is, is comedy has suspended me in a perpetual state of adolescence. The way I've been telling that story is through jokes. And stories, unlike jokes, need three parts, a beginning, a middle and an end. Jokes only two parts, a beginning and a middle. And what I had done with that comedy show about coming out was I froze an incredibly formative experience at its trauma point and I sealed it off into jokes. And that story became a routine and through repetition, that joke version fused with my actual memory of what happened. But unfortunately, that joke version was not nearly sophisticated enough to help me undo the damage done to me in reality. This, is, this contrast is kind of what I'm working towards in this podcast. How we might have these slippery, offensive comed- comedies, but it pales in comparison to a comedian who takes responsibility seriously enough to embed it in the very material that they create their art out of. But let's talk a little bit more about irony how we do it successfully so how we do take responsibility so that article about the new offenders one of the interesting things about it is that it has a couple of response articles from comedians that are mentioned who defend their comedy and comedy in general against the accusation of offensiveness so this is where we hear them say things like if my intentions are not clear then i've failed which I think is a very responsible attitude. It's still, it's still difficult, Yanni. In my small experience, um, if someone has been offended, then the material is offensive, and this is not what I wish to achieve, so it's something I should change, or even get rid of. If this was a case of irony, then again I was not clear with my intentions, so that needs to change. But people, a lot of people question whether it's really my responsibility as an artist or the audience's responsibility to get the joke. And I mean, the fact that mainstream audiences are by their nature a dominant demographic does make this point tricky. It will always be hard for the the oppressed to act against their oppression because of the, the very nature of it, because those people are, who are oppressed do not have a voice in order to stand up to it most of the time. We can look at the Me Too movement as being a very successful um, counter move to this, where people who might have experienced lots of situations where they did not have a voice and couldn't speak out against it being able to find that voice and being able to find space in mainstream culture to criticize 
I mean, you know, if, if, is it really the performer's responsibility? I think like yes and no, because you can be taken out of context for sure, but you are saying something with what you put out there. So I think that that needs to be considered very seriously and carefully. I'm going to play a little clip and again from Stuart Lee to just give a little kind of example of um, something that happened and it relates to Jimmy Carr, it relates to how Jimmy Carr took another comedian called Jim Davidson who is a, a, a notoriously offensive comic. Um, he took him to court over a joke that he stole. And there's always been a kind of tradition of the mainstream acts stealing our jokes. In fact, you might remember at the end of 2004, uh, Jimmy Carr had to take Jim Davidson to task for stealing some of his material, right? Although, to be honest, if Jim Davidson can steal your material, maybe it's time to think about dropping it. <laughs> Although, to be fair to Jimmy Carr, it was a kind of sexist, woman-hating bit that he'd written with a sense of irony that Jim Davidson was able to appropriate at face value. <laughs> One of the kindest things you can say about Jim Davidson as a fellow comic is he's not a writer-performer who's troubled by the notion of duality of meaning. There's a kind of double critic there of, of Jimmy Carr and Jim Davidson. But it, it speaks to that discussion of who is responsible for taking or giving offence. And I'd like to again play some more Stuart Lee to, to widen that discussion. And in this clip, he's um, talking about political correctness again. He's talking about um, offending people. And it sounds a bit like he's just made an offensive joke towards um, Islam, towards Muslims, it, which is not the case. It's, it's, the context is slightly different from that. He's talking about a little more hypothetically, if I made such a joke. But one hesitates in the current climate to make a joke on television uh, about the Muslims, right? Not for fear of religious reprisals, when's that ever harmed anyone? <laughs> but, <laughs> but because of a more sort of slippery problem, which is this, right? When you make a joke amongst friends or to an audience like this here, these are like sophisticated London people, they're clever, they get irony and they know it's not meant with any uh, aggression or hatred but you, we don't know who's out there watching this anyone could be watching this program there's no way of preventing them uh, much against my better judgment it's now been broadcast it's out of our control right. and that we don't look people there we don't know what they think they could be laughing in a really hostile way at that guy ah yeah you don't know you don't know who's there the very worst people are out there these they're all fine but there are people out there you wouldn't spit on them, I tell you what, right? Hostile, unpleasant people, the, the British viewing public. So, this is a criticism of the attitude that it's the responsibility of the audience to take offence or to understand the irony to get the joke. And it's exaggerated, so it's being very, very abusive towards the television audience to an ironic extent in order to suggest that you can't really do that you can't really dismiss the audience that is offended 
but using irony to do that is itself perhaps problematic like i can totally imagine someone that just if you're listening to that clip you might have found that very unpleasant his attitude so i think it still exists in this gray area but again Stuart lee like hannah gadsby is a comedian who embeds sort of self-critic and awareness of the, what topics they're covering in their art and like i said that clip was not preceded by a joke about muslims it's a more complex routine than that so i kind of want to leave that point there and give a couple of addendums um to this discussion the first um, i'm going to talk quite a bit about charlie brooker in this bit so charlie brooker is a is a satirical comedian in the sense of what we understand in this discussion by satire working in the uk he is the creator showrunner and uh, he writes a lot of black mirror but before that he did um some shows called screen wipe and news wipe which were him watching television or watching news on television and directing a kind of cr critic a quite strong at points sort of abusive critic and off and very heavily ironic actually maybe irony is not the right word to use in, <clears throat> in terms of screen wipe and news wipe but a very heavy critic towards um, other cultural productions Anyway, we've come to Charlie Brooker. What I want to ask, what I want, to, what I want to think about is when we are laughing at who we want and we're saying what we would like to say, when we've kind of, we're using satire in a, or irony in a very responsible way, is it all still groovy? So I found an article by someone called Yasmin Alibhabi, Al oh, sorry, Alibhabi Brown in the independent UK newspaper and uh, Yasmin says laughing at politicians and deriding the political system may be creating apathy rage disengagement and worst of all profound pessimism public pessimism is lethal for a working democracy there are a couple of issues I take with this one that um, satire is creating apathy rage disengagement and pessimism there are lots of factors i believe creating those feelings the worst or the the, the strongest things creating those are the political system itself the political system especially if i think about the uk does make people apathetic angry and disengaged and cynical like we talked about in the last episode and also Yasmin says that public pessimism is lethal for a working democracy. Don't necessarily agree that we live in a working democracy. But I think there's still a point here. Because pessimism, or we can maybe bring it back to dangerous cynicism, that might be lethal for revolution. You know, it might be lethal for kind of any active dissent. There's a satirical news show in US called Last Week Tonight. And 
they have um, done a lot of material covering Donald Trump and sometimes they've illustrated how Donald Trump has been wrong about something that he said and they've explained why and delivered the evidence for it and they've got a we got him big red button and, he, and they they prove him wrong and they press the button like yeah we got him we got him woo and they have a big celebration and then someone comes on and says oh no actually he's he's still the president and the point of this routine is we can make fun of these political figures but in fact um it doesn't it doesn't do anything it, it's it's not a functional form of dissent um, and worse it might even pacify us so I found um, a very interesting Charlie Brooker interview where he talks a little bit about this I'm gonna just play this we did we did an episode we did a black mirror episode about a comedian who controls a cartoon bear that runs runs for office after it becomes a sort of uh, an anti-politics celebrity and it's certainly you can see and that was loosely based on boris johnson in a way because he became he became a sort of figure through appearing on have i got news for you and becoming a kind of uh, well, the, the, a buffoon. The, the, the comedian in Italy, the five-star movement. Beppe Grillo, yeah. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's, so it's, it's certainly, it's very, it's kind of like inoculating yourself to, to mockery, is to become kind of beyond, uh, beyond mockery by, by openly sort of behaving <laughs> like an oaf. Um, this is, a, the exact same thing is also discussed uh, by Stuart Lee in um, an episode of his TV show, which is about entitled satire about how politics has become so ridiculous that it's become hard to actually satirize it and at this point sometimes I think you know we should be fucking angry about some of this stuff we shouldn't be making comedy about it because not because it's inappropriate but because it's just realistically there's more pressing things to do to change this world. I do think that um, making culture that is satir satirical is an important part of change, but it seems to me that there's almost too much of it. And um, there's so much comedy directed at Donald Trump that it kind of inoculates himself, it, he, or he is kind of inoculated against all of that satire because it's sort of diluted. The real things that we should be focusing on are political actions or direct actions against governments. So if you thought that this discussion was in any way a kind of call to sterilize comedy and to remove any offensiveness, hopefully you don't think that now because that's not really the point here. Like the point is maybe not whether this comedy is appropriate or not, but whether it's appropriate to be doing and consuming comedy at all at this point because it's such an extreme time. And maybe satire just doesn't move us like it used to do. And I think this is where we really come back to this hyper-consumerist culture. It's so fast-paced, we barely have time to process it. There's so much of it that it's diluted. Kind of, if you contrast it to a more a slower paced consumption of culture those acts of satire hold more weight and can maybe shape 
affect more change, be more radical, simply because they're not, they, 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 they stand on their own more powerfully. They're not so lost in all of this crazy media that we get thrown at us. Second addendum I want to make to this discussion is 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 a little bit more subtle. It's kind of like how we make our jokes. So like the style in which we make our jokes is that itself, yeah, and it's something that can be problematic. Like we talk a lot on this show about on this show on this show on this podcast. I think I've been li- listening to too many comedians um, on this podcast about the way we try and present, like we're chatting to each other and. It might just be that the way we talk can be problematic if we really want to criticise what's going on. So I'm going to play a clip from um, Charlie Brooker's TV show Nathan Barley, which was kind of earlier before Black Mirror, which is a huge mockery of this uh, East London hipster culture, which is sort of devoid of morals and kind of eats up anything negative into a kind of flashy trend so there's a particular episode which I have a kind of very difficult time watching um, which centers around this very young uh, girl who's addicted to cocaine and Nathan Barley the main character um, receives a blowjob from her um, and during the blowjob he gets a phone call and is told that she's uh, 13 it turns out she's not, she's 18, but um, there's this little conversation between him where, where he is sitting with a friend who is very disgusted at him for, um, for for getting this blowjob and says, as far as I'm concerned, because you thought she was 13, that was a blowjob from a 13-year-old girl. What? No. Nathan got a blowjob of a 13-year-old girl. Well... Not. Rise it. Nathan got a blowjob off a 13 year old girl. Not. Hang on. Claire in. No way! She's. What's the no way, yeah? Just. Polly got a blowjob off a 13 year old girl! That is well no way. How do you pull that off? Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant way. <laughs> so, what this episode is, is quite violent comedy because it's about. Um, this basically about sexual abuse and paedophilia and what that little scene shows is how that can be transformed into something even positive and I understand there's an irony in there and we're kind of meant to laugh at that fact that it gets transformed in that way from something negative into something that these like immoral people think is cool but the question is, when we're laughing at that, are we in fact sort of joining in with them in 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 uh, removing that critic of Nathan's action, and we kind of kind of move that to one side, and we just kind of go on with enjoying that comedy show, and is that an appropriate sort of style of comedy? Again, it comes back to like, shouldn't we just be angry at that? Is it really a place for comedy? And even more subtle than that can be just, if you look at stand-up comedians who it's just one voice presenting, like Doug Stanhope, who we listened to at the beginning, his aggression 
and his authoritativeness can that be a problem in itself and I want to play a little bit from Charlie Brooker's screen wipe to get a, um, a feeling for the attitude in which he presents and maybe maybe it's something that you also can find is problematic or you can question if it is or not so this in this one he's talking about um, aspirational TV which is like TV um, which has which features characters that are very rich and sexy and cool and um, it's very popular in the world of TV production and TV commissioning to have shows that are aspirational people can look up to the characters <laughs> isn't life fantastic you've got the looks the clothes the money you are living the dream my friend <laughs> <laughs> Except you're not, are you? The dream's just that, a dream. Real life doesn't work like that. Real life's a knobbly old mess full of graft and tedium and unexpected kicks to the nuts, spiritually speaking. So how come half the time your TV's smothered with glittering f**kwits like that? Fuck! Oh! So the question is, is shouting fuck off at the world a really valuable form of satire? Obviously in that clip you see a, like a more developed critic and he does in his show do these more developed critics but he also just does sitting on the sofa shouting at television. And the question is, what good does that do? And I actually found an interview with him, there's the same interview I found before, um, where he says something that I think is very interesting about his attitude to the kind of satire that he has done. I got fed up with writing um, columns generally just because I dis I, I've started feeling like there's so much extraneous communication and well, yap in the world. I didn't want to keep on, adding to, a to really the toxic sub subject. Pile. There's a cacophony, isn't there? Yeah. And technology, going back to the printing press, mm -hmm. has made that possible, basically. It's too easy to say stuff, really. Well, I don't know. I, I wouldn't, that's not a negative, though, is it? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, just, there's just, it's just a lot of people shouting, isn't it? And, and, and columnists. How many columnists are there? I mean, they're just... Well, there's too many. There's not, it's not like there's a columnist shortage. No, is that why you sort of gave you you withdrew a bit from your guardian? I did a bit just because I kind of felt that um, I, I, it's not a good mindset for a columnist to be in. Is thinking, oh, what's the point of saying it? What's the point of me saying anything? I've said enough. I think that's a really interesting example, and of course, this is in an interview, not in the art he's producing. An interesting example of him taking responsibility and saying kind of doubting the art that he's put out there and and stopping his 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 column column writing so i think to think about this more it's like where and how do we access this stuff and as you heard in that clip they again talking about this sort of hyper consumerist culture in a way but it's like if you think there's a really really wide release like something on YouTube is so accessible something on television reaches so many people it means really means wide release so you might think more responsibility is necessary because of all these people you're reading but somehow it seems less important because any one piece of art is just a drop in an ocean and the audience is so vast that you can't possibly cover um, 
you know be, being held responsible to all of them so then you kind of don't feel responsible to anybody and I think this is why we should take our time consuming art if not to examine how responsible it is itself then to take responsibility ourselves and create dialogue about its content and participate in it I want to kind of start to wrap up with a quote from Richard Herring. Richard Herring is a comedian who worked with Stuart Lee before. He does a lot of stuff at the moment. He's a pod, really, re regular podcast for a long time. And he actually responded to this Guardian article about the new offenders. And he says, There is no harm in exploring the truth about racism when all moral, scientific, social, historical and genetic evidence demonstrates it to be groundless and ridiculous and funny. And I want to bring up this idea that it's just simply not the case for some people who are victims of racism or of any other oppression. We can, have the, we can hold this truth that that oppression is wrong, but to kind of minimize its effect by just treating it lightly is going to be insensitive to people who are victims of it at the end of the day like all of this kind of culture that we've been talking about is not accessible to everyone we do often find that we speak from a position of privilege in, in any form of culture that any, any piece of art that we make because of the fact we can make art and the reality is this world is pretty much defined by oppression and privilege. Those two things are, are so crucial in understanding how things work and how we can relate to each other. I think we need to adapt our approach like accordingly in this space of hyper-consumerism. We need to, as consumers, to try and take our time and really discuss and criticise what we are consuming. And as producers of culture, we need to be aware as much as possible of how to do that responsibly. So there is a risk here of maybe dismissing more frivolous culture, but Yanni, let's be radical, at least in this discussion. I want to raise people like Stuart Lee up there who do take this responsibility. And I want to raise Hannah Gadsby. And what you'll notice, or what you may have not noticed, but in all of this podcast, Hannah Gadsby is the only woman who we've heard from. And that's because I grew up on mainly male and mainly white comedians. So that's my pool of references from which I can draw. And that's reflective of the dominance in society of white patriarchy. So I'm raising Hannah Gadsby up there, even though you might, she might um, be reminiscent of Bill Hicks's authoritative approach, which I think is anachronistic now, because it's very dictatorial, it's very moralistic. But when we give to the stage to someone with the identity and the perspective and the insight and experience of Hannah Gadsby, who is not a dominant, who does not have a dominant identity, has a marginal identity and really presents that not as self-deprecating and repeating the oppression or going around this but kind of advocating for her own experience that is radically different 
And if I don't think, I think if we don't start to work our way towards that kind of culture, we're in a kind of crisis. Let me explain to you what a joke is. Uh, and when you strip it back to its bare essential components, like its bare minimum, a joke is simply two things. It needs two things to work, a setup and a punchline. And it is essentially a question with a surprise answer. Right? But in this context, what a joke is, is a question that I have artificially inseminated with tension. I do that, and that's my job. I make you all feel tense, and then I make you laugh, and you're like, oh, thanks for that. <laughs> I was feeling a bit tense. I made you tense. This is an abusive relationship. Do you know why I'm such a funny fucker? Do you know? It's because I've, you know, I've been learning the art of tension diffusion since I was a children. But back then it wasn't a job, wasn't even a hobby, it was a survival tactic. I didn't have to invent the tension, I was the tension. I, I, I'm tired of tension. Tension is making me sick. It is time I stopped. I'm going to leave this discussion there. I hope, it was a very long podcast, thank you for sticking with it. Um, but I hope that I covered lots of interesting things. And I hope that if it didn't build to something very definitive, then it at least gives you some things and touch points to consider when you're engaging in especially comedy and especially stand-up comedy. But even when you are making jokes amongst your friends. So I want to lighten this long, discursive mood by playing a kind of ironic song. Um, by Lobster B and it's a remix of Britney Spears' Toxic and I particularly like music which recontextualizes sort of trashy pop in funny ways I think it kind of undermines the original relationship we had with that piece of music um, which is another topic for another podcast very much in this vein. Maybe we do it next time. Who knows? Um, but yeah, this is Lobster B. And um, yeah, thank you for sticking with it. Have a wonderful week. Opiorum Sizi, Seviorum Sizi. Be compassionate to yourselves, be compassionate to other people. Hadi bye bye.
Uh, so I'm not very experienced in, in, you know, controlling anger. It's not my place to be angry on a comedy stage. My, I'm supposed to be doing self-deprecating humour. Um, people feel safer when men do the angry comedy. Uh, they're the kings of the genre. When I do it, I'm just a miserable lesbian ruining all the fun on the banter. When men do it, heroes of free speech. <laughs> <laughs>